Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. Uh, how's how's life in space for you? It's good. Just out here drifting around. Yeah, it's a little chilly. Be sure to rotate. You want the barbecue mode. No one can hear me scream. That's that's true. That's a good reference. I like that. Um, as always, I feel like part of our intro is lots of stuff happened in the last fortnight, so we should probably just get right to it with our pre-flight uh, checklist full of items before we blast off. We have many, 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 many checklist items to go through. Yeah, let's talk about uh, Bill Nelson, officially appointed and then sworn in as the NASA administrator. Some uh, interesting things about this is a unanimous voice vote by the Senate. Uh, he's has lots of history on the Hill. I get the sense of yeah. having friends on both sides of the aisle. He was sworn in by Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. And what I thought was a really nice touch is that Charlie Bolden was in attendance and Jim Bridenstine was there on a MacBook Pro that someone was holding via via Skype or Zoom or something. Yeah, he was on the laptop. Yeah, the last two NASA administrators, present or virtually present. And, you know, what I didn't realize, and this shows that I'm, I'm not paying as close attention as I should, is that Charlie Bolden, the previous NASA administrator in the Obama administration, he was, I believe, the pilot on uh, Bill Nelson's space shuttle mission. I didn't know that. So that's a space shuttle mission with two NASA administrators now. I think it was neat, too, Bill Nelson, in, the, in his welcome video to NASA itself, you know, he, he helped get... Uh, Charlie Bolden through the process in the Obama administration. So these two guys have a really long, uh, a really right. long history and relationship. And I think having Jim Bridenstine there as well, he's trying to show that that NASA should be uh, nonpartisan or extra partisan. Right. You know, like beyond partisan politics, above those politics. And I, I thought it was a, a really nice touch. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is the beginning of it, and now you know. <laughs> Now we we go on. He's a. Uh, he, <laughs> I hope that so Pam Melroy, who we mentioned last time, is uh, nominated. hasn't yet been confirmed, but is nominated to be um, the number two administrator at NASA. And you know he mentioned that they'll work together as a team, and that's good because um, again, I, it's you you're never you're never too old to do jobs. Let's just say, but <laughs> Bill Nelson is. Bill Nelson, like like the president, is a, an older American, <laughs> and uh, I did have a moment where I'm like, "Wow, he's been he's been around politics for a million years." Yeah. Um, but uh, that's the advantage of that is that he knows everybody. But also, uh, when he mentions Pam Melroy, it's sort of like, "Yes," and also my energetic sidekick will be available. So yeah, yeah, he called her a partner that they're going to work closely together and he doesn't have to set up his administration in nasa that way but i think he's going to because i think he realizes that uh pam Ellery brings things to the table that he doesn't she has that history within nasa as an astronaut uh, she is younger she's a woman she brings uh voices uh from within nasa to the table that he just he just can't as an outsider. Now, to be fair, we said that about Brian Stein four years ago, and he turned out to be a very solid NASA administrator. So, I, you Absolutely. know, I want to see what Nelson will do. But so far, I like his approach 
talking about this is not a political uh, agency. He mentions in his in his video to the NASA family, which he calls them family many times, is that NASA is the most popular federal agency uh, in the public's eyes. And it's because of their science and engineering and research and all of these things that benefit all of us. So I think he has the right vision going into it. Yeah, I think so. And and I, I think Bridenstine proved to your point that initial reads on NASA administrators can frequently be wrong. And that I think, as we've detailed here over the years, Bridenstine showed that being a savvy politician, you know, for, for all this talk of like, we don't want to be partisan, NASA is super political in the sense that it has to have good relationships with Congress to get money. That's the political aspect of NASA. And so having somebody there who's like, we want to work with everybody, but also be a real kind of person who knows people at in Congress is really important. Because if you put NASA at opposition to Congress, what you end up getting is it's you know it's bad for NASA. NASA doesn't get what it wants. But if you if you have somebody who's a real buddy of the people in Congress, that's good for NASA. So um, interesting, you know. I think Bridenstine was an interesting model there, and and we'll see how it goes with Nelson. But he seems to be beloved by you know the Congress, and that that's mm-hmm. going to help them. Uh, the other you mentioned uh, Kamala Harris. Another thing that came out there was this big question of like. When um, the Trump administration re- uh, reinstated the National Space Council, which hadn't been around for, I don't know, a decade or two, and it was led by Mike Pence. And so you would see Pence as sort of the president's designated representative at a bunch of NASA functions and all of that. Right. And there was a real question if uh, in the new administration they would continue the National Space Council because it was an initiative of the previous administration. And as with most things involving NASA, actually, the Biden administration is... Um, kind of going with the flow and the precedent set by the Trump administration. It's one of the few places <laughs> where the Biden administration is saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that Trump that Trump guy had some good ideas, right? So uh, Kamala Harris is going to chair the National Space Council, and they're just going to go straight up with, like, vice president as president's representative on yeah. a council for the government to talk about space policy. Let's keep doing that. And I'm sure that the what they talk about and their priorities will be different and the people will be different. All those other things will be different. But the structure that was sort of reestablished with the Trump administration seems to be continuing continuing that I, I think a lot of people in first off NASA clearly not an enormous priority for uh, the Biden administration given all the other stuff that they want to do um, but still there's moon rock and the Oval Office and stuff like that I think it would be safe to say that this is not an area where they think that they need to you know turn everything over and change what's going on. And so there's there's definitely a kind of let it ride feeling mm-hmm. coming definitely. from the Biden administration for NASA. And that's, as we've lamented, changes in administrations totally losing all momentum at NASA again and again in this century. This is a good sign, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's not that Harris in particular won't put uh, a, a different set of priorities down. I mean, uh, and there's this uh, article on CBS about what she plans on focusing on, including climate change, uh, STEM, diversity in the workforce, and sustainable commercial space activity. Not all of those things were popular in the previous administration. But as far as the big picture stuff, I don't think the Biden administration at this point is moving any any targets around. And uh, yeah. And I agree. I mean, if we can get Another four years with Artemis being the big focus for 
returning to crewed flight from NASA, then uh, it'll be possible. So uh, I'm I'm encouraged by all of this, and I am excited to see what uh, Bill Nelson will uh, will bring once the dust settles from this, and we start seeing decisions from his administration. Okay, um, related sort of NASA politics, government kind of thing. That's a news item that we need to talk about. Is uh, last time we talked about how NASA had chosen. Um, SpaceX and Starship for the human landing system for the moon, for Artemis. And this was a surprise because it was originally thought that they were going to pick two and they only picked one and it was SpaceX. And it turns out that one of the things they said is that they didn't really have the budget from Congress to choose if they wanted to keep the time frame reasonable at all uh, to choose two and pay two companies to build landers. So they just decided to go down to one, which was SpaceX and Starship. Now, the... Um, the news is that both Blue Origin and Dynetics, two, the two companies that were bidding against SpaceX for the HLS, uh, have officially protested the awarding of that contract. That goes to the General Accounting Office of the U.S. government, and they essentially have 100 days to analyze whether any rules were broken and whether this bid was accepted um, improperly. Now, Blue Origin claims that NASA changed the terms of the deal by adjusting uh, what what they were going to look for after that funding shortfall and that NASA should have gone to everybody and said, hey, modify your bids because we're worried about our funding. Um, Dynetics made some similar complaints and also said that the funding level made the program no longer executable, which I thought was a bold statement to make since NASA and SpaceX think that it is. <laughs> right. They're paying SpaceX to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, their argument would be, you can't really do it for that. Come on. Who are we kidding? But NASA and SpaceX say, well, we think they can. Um, keep in mind, though, when Blue Origin talks about, well, we wanted to adjust an opportunity to adjust our bid when you talked about the money that it, this was not a close thing. Blue Origin's bid was $6 billion. Well, almost $6 billion. I love, it's like gas having like a ninth for people in the US. <laughs> it's like the gas is three forty-nine and nine tenths of a cent because it's not three fifty. It's always held there nine tenths of a cent under. Well, this is like that. It's like, it's not $6 billion. No, no, no. It's $5.98 billion or whatever it was. It's like, oh, well, that's better. Thank goodness it's not $6 billion. So Blue Origin's <laughs> bid was $6 billion. How has the Blue Origin been? Like a gas uh, a gas station. Now you know. Um, $6 billion and the SpaceX bid was $3 billion. It's half. It's half. It's really hard for me to see how Blue Origin would be like, oh, oh, if we knew that our bid was two, twice as big as it should be, we would have adjusted it some. So I'm a little skeptical. It sounds like they're, what they're really doing is trying to find a technicality here uh, to churn the waters and uh, maybe make some political points. Um, expert analysis that I've read suggests that NASA did things by the book. They did the wording like they thought they would pick two, but they never said they would pick two. <laughs> they never actually promised. They said they, their goal was to pick two, but mm-hmm. it was uh, as many as two or something like that, right? It was not, it, we will pick two. Um, and there's a really interesting, it strikes me, my analysis here is that there's a game of chicken going on. Um, and this is like, a little bit of a very clever movement by NASA. NASA has picked this winner and said, well, we only picked one because we didn't get enough funding from Congress. So we only had enough money for one and it was the low bid and we think we can make it work. So we're just going to go with SpaceX. So if Blue Origin and its 
uh, partners on the national team, right, which is all the enormous aerospace companies that, that are that are out there that work on big government contracts, if they run off to Congress to protest this and are like, what are you letting them do? You can't do it. NASA's response is going to be, sure, give us more money and uh, we'll award another contract. That's fine. So it basically turns it back, allows NASA to turn it back on Congress and say, "This we're not being mean here. You didn't give us the money for two. So, and, and then Congress has to be like, well, do we care about Blue Origin and our contractor partners and all that enough to fund NASA to give them money too? Or... Is or is it sort of like oh yeah you're right we didn't give you more money oh well and then they move on and it's over I I don't know how all of that political calculus works but it's kind of fascinating um, so they got a hundred days it's unclear if this pause will actually mean anything because SpaceX is so busy developing Starship already which we'll talk right. about in a little bit that I, I'm unclear whether this will have any real effect probably like. If the money was flowing, they would start staffing up maybe uh, and, and doing some preliminary work. But it, it feels like this is not going to have a huge effect for a 100-day wait since this is a project that was already you know, underway, funded by SpaceX, the preliminary stuff involving Starship. And uh, also, I think, worth pointing out, this happens all the time. Um, it's absolutely fair for contractors like Blue Origin and Dynex or Bidders to object uh, SpaceX has done it a bunch. In fact, just a couple of years ago, SpaceX objected to one award. It's all part of the process. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens. But it, it's not unusual for something like this to happen. This is just the stakes here are pretty high. Yeah. And and Bill Nelson was asked about this in his uh, hearings in Congress before he was voted to be the administrator and was asked what he thought about SpaceX being the, the sole winner of this contract. And Nelson did say that competition is always good and that, that he did want to see additional competition, but at the same time that he was uh, behind NASA's decision here. And there's something uh, too to remember here is that uh, NASA has said that this is for the, the beginning of Artemis but yeah, there the will be landing right there will be recurring landing services mm -hmm. later on and that there will be opportunity for the blue origin team or dynetics to bid or play a role once we're in that yeah. time frame and so they're not shut out forever even if they don't get their way with this complaint and i, I don't think they will because i just don't think there's the money for it but uh, there is a, a later version of this that they could be involved in as well. And it would be easy to look at that and say, well, yeah, but who are we kidding? SpaceX, if they do this first one, they're going to be the one who who does this from now on. And good luck to Blue Origin. I don't think that's true because of the way Artemis is structured. For people who don't remember, the way Artemis is structured, and you know, a lot of that's up in the air with the SLS and all of that. But the way the plan is structured is the first landing is going to be a um, a direct you know, not 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 quite direct because you have to switch over to the landing system and go down. But it doesn't involve the Lunar Gateway space station at all. It's a uh, it's like they they want to have the Lunar Gateway. They want to have sustainable uh, ways of getting down to the moon and different parts of the moon. The Lunar Gateway is part of the Artemis plan, but it's not part of the first landing. So there's totally a scenario here where SpaceX is involved in this first landing, but that simultaneously. 
as part of the gateway plan, there is a Blue Origin-led lander that wins a contract to park their lander at gateway for future missions. Like, that's not unreasonable. It's no. also not unreasonable that you would see something like Commercial Crew, where the gateway station will have multiple lander vehicles attached to it. Like, there are all sorts of different ways that they could go with this. So it's not the whole... Artemis program, this one bid. Um, but I also understand that if I were Blue Origin, I'd spend a huge amount of money up front trying to come up with this landing system and then just get shut out. Mm -hmm. I would not be happy about it. So we'll see what happens. What is, uh, what's going on in the sky above us, Jason? Should should we be afraid? It's the sky. Oh, it's law. Law is happening. Space law. Space law. <laughs> so China launched. Well, we got to do it. No, no, no. There's a segment thing. Oh, is there? Uh -huh. What's it called? Space Law Segment. Scrutinizing. Oh. I haven't read this in a long time. Space Law Segment. Proposals and concisely explaining laws alongside ways space experimentation guidelines manage existing and new technologies. Space Law. Oh, man. I didn't even realize that in, here inside the pre flight checklist, we are in the Space Law Segment. Maybe we uh, never left. China launched the core model for its new space station, core module for its new space station on April 29th. Uh, that's a whole story that's going to be interesting. Russia has said that it will be a participant. Is it just kind of negging the U.S. about the ISS? We don't know. European Space Agency is involved a little bit. Uh, we know that the U.S., by law, NASA cannot be involved in Chinese Space Agency in any way, which is uh, leaves the U.S. potentially on the outside looking in on this project, which is interesting. Um, anyway, this module went up on a Long March 5B rocket. It's a very big rocket. And that rocket is going to have an uncontrolled re-entry. Current cool. predictions suggest it will make an uncontrolled re-entry somewhere as far north as New York, as far south as New Zealand. So that's a lot of the globe. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of the earth. And, and sometime between May 8th and May 10th. So also, again, this will, this will get narrower and narrower and narrower as it gets closer. Uh, but right now, it's, it's sort of like it's going to come down somewhere sometime. Um, it's unclear because China doesn't talk about this stuff. If they added the ability to do a controlled re-entry to the Long March rocket and it failed, or if they just don't care, although given the fact that China launches rockets and just has the, the stages rain down on the countryside, I'm going to go with don't care. That's going to be my prediction that they kind of don't care, which leads us to space law. Um, the Planetary Society wrote a piece uh, it's Ray Paoletta, um, and <laughs> this is about who's responsible if a rocket lands in your backyard, basically. <laughs> and the answer is you don't want a rocket landing on your house. You don't. You you don't. Not only would it be an international incident, but also um, would your insurance cover that? Maybe. Maybe. So... There is an international treaty for this. It's from 1972. It's the Space Liability Convention. It establishes who is responsible for damage caused by falling space objects. It has actually been invoked one time in 1978 when a Soviet spy satellite landed in Canada. <laughs> and <laughs> Hello, can I'm here. And they, and they agreed to pay, the Soviet Union agreed to pay Canada for the cleanup of toxic waste in the soil at the crash site of the spy satellite. Okay. But the, the problem with the Space Liability Convention is it, it's a government-to-government -government process. So if the Long March 5B crashes into your house, you personally can't, like, sue the Chinese government, probably. The U.S. government 
could go to the Chinese government and say, uh, you broke some of our stuff with your rocket. You need to pay us because they're both signatories in the uh, space liability convention. Um, but you would probably just need to file an insurance claim about that. Um, and, and my memory, like when I was a kid, one of my early space memories is watching Skylab in one of its last orbits as it um, uh, did an uncontrolled reentry. And it, I think the Australian outback and the Indian Ocean got most of that in the end. But mm-hmm. uh, one of the lessons that I learned as a, a little kid back then was most of the Earth's surface is covered by water. And actually, even most of the land surface doesn't have anything on it. So your chance of getting hit by space debris, it's very low. But you never know. I mean, you wouldn't want rocket bits raining down on New York City, right? That no. would not be ideal. No, not ideal. So... Um, anyway, everybody keep watching the skies and get ready to dodge the long march debris if it comes into your neighborhood. And But you can't sue China. I'm just going to wear my, my bike helmet for the rest of the week. Yeah, that'll, that'll do it. That'll solve it. Seriously, though, don't, don't let this keep you up at night. It'll land in water. Yeah, and probably... Um, it will just be really an international incident and and they may not even invoke it but if it if it works politically or if there's some big thing they may if if something gets damaged and a government calls china on it it might be enough to create a little pressure on china to make an effort to control which the they need to of do these things i mean what they yeah. do over their own country on its own is terrible it's bad enough, right? But this is just like, hey, world, rocket coming down. Watch out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, that's the space law segment. Space but we're law. not done with the pre-flight checklist because there's one more item. Very it's confusing and maybe poorly ordered on our part. SN15. For the first time, SpaceX has had a high-altitude test of the uh, Starship prototype that did not end in a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. Yes, so this was yesterday on May 5th out of their Texas uh, property, f- uh, flew 10 kilometers, about six miles, performed the uh, landing flip maneuver. So this thing comes in kind of on its belly and then turns at the last second. It has three Raptor engines and they shut them down as they climb and then turn a couple back on at various stages as they come back in. It's a very complicated procedure, which is mm-hmm. why... At least three of the four have exploded. The The fourth one blew up after it landed, which was very exciting. It landed a little bit hard and had a big a big fuel leak and a fire, and then it blew up. This one also had a fire, and I, I noticed that the SpaceX stream, which was very brief, you know, there's the NASA sp- spaceflight.com stream where they were on for like 18 hours straight. They were like doing a telethon, but the SpaceX stream was very short. And um, they landed, and and uh, the guy John Insprucker in um, for SpaceX is just like, "Hey, we did it! All right, bye." And the last time this happened, they they cut away, and then it exploded. <laughs> I'm like, oh, um, there, and there was a big fire. There was like still some methane leaking, and so there was a fire at the base of the Starship. But they have little robot um, spray cannons mm-hmm. on on the 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 landing pad. Yeah, and I like they, that. Uh, they, they extinguished the fire, so it, it did not explode. No, exploded. and uh, it's a it's a huge it's a huge step, right? They they it is. they took it up and they and then they landed it, and that that is all. Like it's a it's a, ultimately it's a second stage, so the liftoff part is nice, but it will be lifting off from a second stage. the The big part is how does it handle coming back down, 
and uh, they they jumped a bunch of increments of numbers of serial numbers to get to 15 because they made a bunch of changes and they discarded some of the ones they were working on. It's like, no, we're not going to even use that. We're going to move ahead to this new thing. And this is the iterative nature. Um, you know, Eric Berger's book, Lift Off, about the Falcon 1, you know, tells that story about their first rocket. But it, it has given me a perspective into this because, like, I, I get what they're doing. I know this is bigger and there are more people and there's more money involved and all of those things. But it's very much the uh, rapid iteration, you know, that didn't work. Why didn't it work? Fix that problem. Now let's try it. Does it work now? That's their that's their approach here. And this is a big step forward because you can finally say, oh, yeah. It did work. Now, now, if you look at like the history of Falcon 9s, I feel like you go through the point where they all explode, and then you go through the point where it's sort of like every few explode, and then you get to the point where they just don't explode anymore. And we, the, like, you can't get there without having it. You, you got to have that first success, and here it is. And, and like we've said before, SpaceX makes a TV show out of it every time. So we're way mm-hmm. more aware of this process than we would be otherwise right. than we were with the Falcon 1 out in the middle of the ocean. Uh, like in uh, Eric's book that he so uh, so well describes. One thing about this, it is funny that SpaceX does do live streams now because they didn't for a while. And these people down in Texas and like nasaspaceflight.com, like I mentioned, who do these marathon sessions and they got cameras set up everywhere. And I wonder, I would love to have been a part of the um, conversation at SpaceX about that because they're like, on one level, you kind of, this isn't a public event. You're just testing stuff out. At the same time, people want to know about it. And these people over here are watching and they're doing a live stream anyway. So, you know, do you like, all right, well, we'll do ours. And it seems now that that's what they're going to do is that they had a couple cameras on it. They did actually live stream it. It was a very short live stream. But I, I think it's interesting that SpaceX is sort of reestablishing that it wants to be involved in telling its own story instead of just letting a bunch of people with long lenses who are off on the coast in Texas um, tell their story for them. And so that's kind of fascinating where, like, I oh, think yeah. if they had their way, they would not live stream this. But I feel like the interest is too great and they kind of have to. So they are now. Yeah. And I'm curious how they're how they talk about this program changes after the human lander system contract, say that mm-hmm. that all goes through as planned. I, I would imagine we will see SpaceX talking about that more, especially as they move out of this, hopefully, hopefully move out of this phase of they all explode as they see more success. And as they continue to evolve, I'm just going to be really tuned in to see how they talk about their work with the Artemis program, because with Dragon and the lead up to commercial crew, they would they would mention it sometimes. You know, they had a different version of the capsule that was going to be rated for astronauts and they were working on that. And but now that that's happened and we're not we don't have time to talk about it today, but uh, crew one has come back safely. There's a lot more attention now on SpaceX and NASA's partnership. And I just, I just, I wonder how they're going to talk about Starship in this yeah. new reality that they're in. Yeah, the scrutiny. So the story changed, right? This is one of the fascinating things about this whole thing is the moment that they won that contract, the narrative changed. And so now you see the headlines and it's like rocket that will take people to the moon didn't explode. right? It's like, well, wait a second. Uh, yeah, the stakes are higher and the scrutiny is higher and they're just going to have to deal with that, even though, you know, it's really like the lunar stuff is a. It, like we were talking about how how much does a hundred day pause really hurt them like the lunar stuff is is on the to-do list but it's 
is not up at the top. Like getting it to land properly and and getting it to orbit and all of those things are are all on the checklist before uh, the lunar stuff. So there's a long way to go there. But yeah, the 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 scrutiny is a lot higher. And and as as much as it is SpaceX's track record, successful track record of the last decade that has gotten them to this point, the fact is that. Barring any more funding from Congress or a change uh, from the GAO in terms of the the award that happened, um, NASA has placed its moon landing eggs in SpaceX's basket. Like mm-hmm. it's it it's the plan now, and that yeah. is a whole other level of scrutiny. Yeah, I mean that's that's the side the side effect of only having one contractor. I mean, think about commercial crew had it only been Boeing. Right. And they just announced today that the Starliner second uncrewed test is going to be the end of July now. Extra pre-flight checklist. Extra pre-flight checklist items about another company. But I mean, imagine if that had been the case, right? We wouldn't have we wouldn't have this program up and running. And so there are pros to having more than one contractor on this, but the budget is what it is and the decision's made unless the government unmakes it. Yeah. So we'll we'll keep an eye. Everybody is watching. Um and uh, we'll let you know. But hey, the bottom line is a starship landed and didn't explode. It looked awesome. It was very exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was cloudy. It's too bad because the, the thing looks amazing when it's flying, but um, we didn't get to see a lot of that. But it, it did. It came back down and did this little turn and land. It was very impressive. Well, let's take a uh, let's take a break and then we'll get back into some news. Sounds good. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and run your business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, they have you covered. Squarespace combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your home online and to make your ideas a reality. Squarespace has everything you need to calculate a beautiful and modern website. You start with a professionally designed template, and then you just use drag-and-drop tools to make it your own. If you need a blog, just put it over here. You need to uh, take care of a photo gallery, just drag it in over here. All uh, all very easy. You can customize the look and feel and the settings and the products you have on sale, all with just a few clicks. And all Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile. That means that your content automatically adjusts so it'll look great on any device. You'll also get free, unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line top security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There's nothing to patch or upgrade. They have award-winning customer support if you need any help. that you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. Plus, you get all the tools you need for SEO and email marketing. I've used Squarespace for a long time on a bunch of different projects, and it really is as easy as it says. You can have a bunch of pictures on your desktop or your computer, drag them in and create a gallery. You don't have to worry about, oh, what JavaScript library do I have? Or what is the CSS doing? Squarespace just takes care of that so you can focus on what you need to. Head to squarespace.com liftoff for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code liftoff to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase. Our thanks to Squarespace for the support of the show and Relay FM. Yay. So there's a bunch of stuff going on 
on Mars, perseverance, ingenuity. What, let's start with uh, ingenuity. How's how's our little buddy doing? Doing great. Keep flying. That's the that's that's the bottom line here. Ingenuity is flying. Um, but there's a, a a plot twist that I didn't see coming here, and I should have seen it coming. Now I'm kicking myself because this whole way everybody's like, okay. We're going to add a helicopter to the Mars rover. And you get the sense that the Mars rover people are like, mm, this is a sideshow. Come on. This is our mission. And they're like, oh, yeah, but but helicopter on Mars. I'm like, all right, fine. But it's just for 30 days. We'll just do It's a tech demo. It's a tech demo. Okay. Just 30 days. So it's now more than a tech demo, which is fascinating to me. And I wonder, again, about the internal politics of that. And is everybody okay with this? But here's what's going on. So the Ingenuity helicopter has four flights under its belt now. Its fourth flight was April 30th. It lasted 117 seconds, so pretty good two-minute flight. It went five meters up and then 133 meters downrange. That is, uh, Americans, that's longer than a football field, if you're wondering how long 113 meters is. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's far. And then it goes back and lands back in this little landing spot. Um, so it's, it's continuing to lengthen its flight with every one of these test flights, which is great. Um, a little quirk, it was supposed to fly on April 29th, but that didn't happen. Um, this is actually related to a launch failure that we talked about, I think, last time, which is uh, basically there's this timing issue in how the commands are sent and how they're executed. And they figure about 15% of the time the sequence gets out of sequence and Ingenuity's computers just say, forget it. Like, I don't understand what you're trying to say. I'm not going to fly. And then they check the next day and they're like, oh, it didn't fly. I guess that's the safest option in that situation. Just, oh, not uh, just uh, we're going to stay put. Right. Yeah. Like I'm not just just uh, I don't want to fly into the side of a hill. So I'm going to just wait here. And this is a as computer people, I feel like you and I really uh, this is this is where we come into into our area of expertise, which is they had this problem, which is. Um, which is worse, having a 15% chance that your your commands won't be accepted and you'll need to reload them the next day. Or you've got the fix, but it requires a, a complete software update where you have to do a software update on a helicopter sitting on the, the floor you know, of the desert on Mars. Um, and the, I think, very smart people at JPL uh, or the very smart people who are in charge of ingenuity were like, yeah, let's just not do the software update <laughs> like let's because the risk when you do a software update i think is is greater because the only risk with the 15 percent thing is just you have to roll the dice again the next day there's no harm to the to the spacecraft but if you do a software update you could bork the computer on the little helicopter and then your mission is over yep yeah th- th- definitely the safer call and uh it, if you lose a day or two here or there not a big deal. No, you know, it's not that not that bad. So I think it's funny that they know exactly what's wrong with it and they could fix it and they've chosen not to. Yep. That and, is funny. Anyway, so <laughs> four flights flew 133 meters at five meters up. Really awesome. Uh, what's next? Now, I mentioned the 30-day window. The whole idea was this was a 30-day demo because Perseverance had to get on with its own mission. It wants to drive over to that delta, which is the outflow channel of what would have been a, a flood of water at some point in Mars's history. There should be that's why they're in Jezero Crater. That's why it's all so interesting. Like that's why they picked this location. Um, so you don't want to hang around while your little sibling is like dragging you down, right? Like yeah. it's like, Mom, I gotta go. Yeah, I don't want to take. 
my little brother with me or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, plot twist. Mom says you have to take the take uh, your little sibling with you now. <laughs> but this is this is so I had no idea they were even considering this. This was so much sold as a tech demo. Um, but it's gone so well, and you know that they have this stuff in their back pockets. Uh, that two things happen. First off, it's gone really well, and second, the Perseverance team, perhaps they were persuaded a little bit, I don't know, has said that the area where they are is interesting enough that they're not going to motor straight over to the Delta. They're going to spend a little time where they are now in this general area instead of sort of like driving uh, a much longer distance to get started. They actually want to stay here for a little bit and even do a sample collection, one of their sample collections at this location, which means you put those two things together and they've extended the mission of Ingenuity. So Ingenuity is now, um, well, here's a quote from the project manager, uh, Mimi Ong, who said, we will now concentrate on the utility of an aerial platform and work on operational products. Okay, what does that mean? It means... They're going to use Ingenuity as a scout for Perseverance. It's going to be like its sidekick. It's going to look at science targets from above. It, it can They can get a better vantage point on where it might be going. And, and I think this is really smart, also helping plot p- potential paths for Perseverance to where it to drive, basically. The idea there that it can give a, an aerial overview of the terrain that's coming up. So... Um, that's what it's going to shift to now that it's sort of proven itself technically, but is still functional. And this is very much a story of all of these Mars missions is you sort of get what you came for and then your uh, your device is still working. So you're like, all right, well, we, you know, I'm not going to shut it off. It's still working. What else can we do while we're on the surface of Mars with a functional uh, device of some kind? So they're going to fly it less often. It's probably only a couple of times a month uh, until it breaks, basically. Um, Perseverance is going to be using its cameras to shoot pictures of it in flight because it's going to be doing its own jobs instead. It's going to be moving and sampling and taking pictures. Um, but Ingenuity is now going to be a little sidekick, a little buddy. Um, Ingenuity is mostly made of off-the-shelf parts, so they figure that at some point the massive temperature difference between night and day on Mars is going to weaken parts of the helicopter, and at some point something's just going to snap. But until then, they're basically they want to keep using this um, the helicopter as a little scout for perseverance and get more data and learn more about um, how an aerial craft could be used in future missions to help the rovers on the ground. So it's going to blaze a trail for perseverance and and uh, be its little buddy for a while, which is cool. And and a huge success for this team. I mean, like you yeah. said, I'm sure this was in someone's back pocket, but. To be able to continue to push this hardware and and really uh, explore future possibilities, I mean, for something that was first of its kind, it really is impressive. Yeah, yeah. So it's a success, uh, right? They didn't even know whether it would fly or not, right? Yeah. It's like, well, we we tried it. We tried to tether it to make it Mars gravity and pull out the 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 air to make it Mars level of uh, thickness of atmosphere, but we didn't really know. And now we have a much better idea. So, yeah, you could totally see a model in the future where uh, there are, you know, there's a helicopter or there are multiple little drones and they're used as tools by the rover, essentially. And they're they're a little team because obviously the rover is going to be able to the, the helicopters are they're very light. They could be heavier than this one, but they're very light. They're, there's limits to what they can do. But 
it gives the rover more that it can't do because it's on the ground. So it's a, it's a great kind of combination. And there are probably places, cliffs and, you know, who knows what else where you could actually get a really interesting um, vantage point that you can't get from the ground. So pretty cool stuff. There is some other stuff going on, though, uh, even yeah. though Ingenuity is uh, very new and exciting. Uh, but Perseverance is hard at work. Uh, one of the instruments and packages on Perseverance is MOXIE, Mars Oxygen in Situ Resource Utilization Experiment. It's pretty good. That's a good one. And so what uh, this is looking at is, can we generate oxygen from what's available to us on Mars. Obviously an important thing if we're going to put boots on the ground at some point and even further down the road, maybe have an outpost on Mars. And so this uses uh, high temperatures to convert CO2 from the atmosphere on Mars into oxygen and carbon monoxide. You get rid of the carbon monoxide. You don't want that. But the oxygen is not only good for us, but it's also potentially, and people talked about this for decades, and it's why things like water ice on the moon are so exciting, uh, you can use that as liquid oxygen for rocket fuel. Yeah. Meaning you don't have to carry a bunch of weight and a bunch of fuel with you to Mars. Yeah, it's a huge deal in the same sense as using reusable rockets improves our access to space from Earth. This improves access off of Mars for future Mars missions, for for things that do sample return or for crewed missions down the road. The fact, like, because every, the cost of carrying all of your return rocket fuel all the way to Mars is enormous, right? Like the weight of that. You got to lug it all the way there and then you got to bring it back. So if you can not do that, and this is, you know, one of the, uh, like you said, it's been discussed for ages now. One of the Mars return kind of like crude Mars mission plans would be staged where you'd actually land something on the surface of Mars that would have a machine in it like Moxie, except at much greater scale. Um, and it would start chugging away, converting the Martian atmosphere into O2 for rocket fuel. And maybe for air as well, but definitely for rocket fuel. And you end up, um, before you even potentially send astronauts to Mars, you've got a refueled spaceship waiting for them yeah. to take them home. Ready to go. And and they don't need to carry their own fuel um, or maybe even as much of their own oxygen for air with them on that trip. It's just a, it's just a big deal. Now, MOXIE, you know, they converted five grams of oxygen. It's... <laughs> It's not it's not a lot. That's you use a gram of oxygen to breathe every two minutes. So um you know they, they Moxie ultimately they want this test to do ten grams in an hour. So, you know, that's not a that's not a lot. That's that's twenty minutes of breathing oxygen in an hour. It's not do the math, it's not gonna work. It's not really for that. But it's a test. It's a very small scale test and it worked. And that's really exciting because you could potentially scale this up and create a rocket fuel factory, land a rocket fuel factory on Mars and uh, and just let it sit there and generate O2. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's yeah. proof of concept. Very exciting uh, towards that future. Well, that's my uh, that's my Mars news, Stephen. There's a lot going on on Mars, turns out. There, there is a lot going on uh, on Mars. 
before we wrap up, uh, we did want to mention that uh, a few days ago, Michael Collins, who was the Apollo command module on Apollo 11 with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin as his crewmates, uh, passed away at the age of 90. Michael Collins got the nickname The Loneliest Man for his time alone in the command module while his crewmates went down to the surface and landed uh, in a very obviously historic event. Michael Collins' background is going to sound very similar uh, Mm. to other astronauts of his era. Grew up in an Army family, went to West Point, then went to the Air Force. Yeah. uh, In part to avoid any suggestions of favoritism, because he came from an army family. so yeah, His father and uncle were both generals, so yeah. I think he felt like he wanted to escape the scrutiny of that a Maybe. little bit. So that's that's a quirk you don't always see, is somebody who went to West Point and then ended up in the Air Force, but that's what Michael Collins chose to do. At which point, his biography becomes extremely familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, things like uh, test pilot at Edwards, a fighter pilot. Uh-huh. He was in yep. the astronaut class of 1963, Right in there with all the other early astronauts. Yep. He flew aboard uh, Gemini 10 with John Young on that mission. And we talked about Gemini 10 forever ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Had two spacewalks. One was just, you know, standing up, you know, basically just sticking your head out the window. But then went over and spacewalked to the dormant Agena, which was uh, in station with their capsule, but he was at the end of a 50-foot tether. This made him the first person to ever meet another spacecraft in orbit. Still something that's not done hardly ever. Uh, but it was, a uh, you know, Jim and I was very important in the in the the steps of building on the road towards Apollo. So uh, made history there, and then, of course, made history on Apollo 11. So if you want to uh, listen to us talk about Gemini 10, that was Liftoff episode 62. And our Apollo 11 episode is episode 103. If you've maybe you've heard of Apollo 11, but you've listened to us <laughs> talk about it. And he had quite, he had quite a, a career post uh, Apollo 11. He retired the next year. He knew that that was sort of like he had done his thing. That was a big thing. Um, he and we mentioned this in the Apollo 11 episode. What a what a legacy he left to be the director of the Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian, which didn't exist yet. And he was responsible for leading the charge to get the museum open, which it opened uh, for the bicentennial in, in 1976. So that was a huge feather in his cap after leaving NASA was um, was getting the Air and Space Museum, which is an amazing museum, up and running um, and really got it built. And, you know, he did some other stuff with the Smithsonian Institution and he did some industry stuff as well um, because... That's where astronauts go to make a living after they're astronauts is they be, they get on boards and <laughs> make some money yeah. uh, in the aerospace industry. It's just a thing that they do. So, uh, but anyway, great story, uh, a wonderful ambassador for NASA and for humanity and for astronauts. And, uh, and I think it used to be the case, I think, where everybody focused on Neil and Buzz and didn't talk about Michael Collins, but I feel like the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 really was an opportunity where Michael Collins got more of his due. And, uh, you know, I think for a while he was sort of the forgotten man of, of Apollo 11. And I don't think that's true anymore. I think that that, that whole story is, has kind of crystallized in a little bit different way where Michael Collins is an integral part of the story. 
Yeah, uh, I agree. And uh, of course, uh, wrote Carrying the Fire, which I think we've both read, maybe even done an episode about it. Um, but yeah, it's 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 sobering because it's yet another uh, one of these guys from this generation of astronauts. There's not there's not many of them left, and I would argue there's there's not many either who had such a big impact on the culture around space. But with his work with the Air and Space Museum, getting that open, becoming the director there, putting this stuff that people had just seen on the evening news or had seen the broadcast, putting it in a way where people could understand the history of it and and see these aircraft and spacecraft up close and learn more about it. I mean, how many people have fallen in love with this topic after visiting someplace like the National Air and Space Museum? I think that impact is hard to overstate. Yeah, absolutely. So 90 years old, he had a great run. What a great uh, legacy. And uh, and we salute Michael Collins. I think that's it, Jason. I think so. If you want to see more about the topics we mentioned, head on over to the website. That is relay.fm slash liftoff slash 149. While you're there, you can get in touch uh, with feedback or follow-up. Or you can find us on Twitter. Jason is there as Snell. And you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. Uh, quickly, I want to tell you about another podcast here on Relay FM. It sounds like a space podcast because its name is Rocket, not a space podcast. No, uh, that's why it, we can't call this podcast Rocket because they already they they got it. They yeah. beat us to the name and the art. But Rocket is awesome. It, uh, they cover tech news, but in a really fun way. Uh, is a fantastic show. Things like, of course, the latest news out of Apple or Microsoft or Google, but. They also cover uh, scams in the tech industry and uh, a lot of uh, societal issues that the tech industry is dealing with. Uh, Rocket is there every week. Check it out. Relay.fm slash Rocket or search for Rocket wherever you get your podcasts. Jason, until our next fortnight, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all.